0: Hey folks, welcome, welcome to the Law Self-Defense Show. A really quick and dirty one today, folks, because I I have to join Nick Riqueta on his channel as soon as I'm done with this. Um, This is just kind of a touching back once again on the um, shooting of Chad Reed by Kyle Carruth uh, outside of Lubbock, Texas, uh, not so long ago, back in November. I wrote about it extensively then, but of course it's back in the news uh, because, uh, the grand jury last week uh, returned the no true bill on, uh, Kyle Caruth. So he will not be facing criminal charges in this case. Uh, so I've been getting a lot of requests to touch on it again, uh, including from legal insurrection where I frequently write as well as of course on my own law self-defense blog. Uh, so I thought I would, um, just summarize all this and, and wrap it up with a bow so we can move on to other things. So this is my legal analysis updated, not really updated, nothing's changed, of the Kyle Caruth shooting death of Chad Reed in Texas. Uh, again, that shooting occurred last November back in the news because of the no trill true bill uh, from the um, uh, from the Texas special grand jury. So the shooting occurred on November 5th, 2022. That's when Kyle Caruth fatally shot Chad Reed in the chest in a child custody associated dispute taking place outside of Karath's uh, Texas home and on his front porch. And last week, on March 31st, 2022, the news media announced that a special grand jury convened in this case returned a no true bill, meaning they declined to indict Caruth on any criminal charges for his having killed Reed. Uh, accordingly, it appears that Caruth will face no criminal liability over this event, although he continues to uh, be sued civilly over his killing of Reed. Uh, Now, does the grand jury declining to return an indictment mean that Caruth's killing of Reed was obviously and indisputably uh, legally justified? That's the question we're going to answer here today. Uh, Before I do that, let me play my little intro video for today's show. And of course, a mention of our sponsor. Here we go. Get rid of this. Okay, I'm back. All right. So that was a little intro, a, a quick mention of our sponsor, which is, of course, CCW Safe. CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self defense insurance. In effect, CCW Safe promises to pay its members' legal expenses of the members involved in a use of force event. And that can turn out to be a lot of money indeed. Uh, I've looked at all the companies that offer this kind of service, as you might imagine, and I found CCW Safe to be the best fit for me. I'm personally a member. My wife, Emily, is personally a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer at lawofselfdefense.com slash CCWsafe. And if you do decide to become a member there, you can save 10% off the first year of your membership with the discount code LOSD10, that's L-O-S-D for Law of Self-Defense, and the number 10 at that URL, law of slash CCW safe. All right. So back, back to the meat of all this. So the question: uh, does the grand jury declining to return an in indictment mean that Caruth's killing of Reed was obviously and indisputably, indisputably legally justified? And the answer is no. Nope. Indeed, to my legal eye, this case continues to look to be manslaughter today as much as it did on November 27th, 2021, when I published my first legal analysis of this event. Uh, for those of you who are law self-defense members, just go to the blog and scroll backwards in time to no- November 27th of last year, and you can access that Chad Raid shooting legal analysis. Now, <clears throat> that my view of the killing hasn't changed from that legal analysis to today Shouldn't surprise anybody, really, because my analysis is always based on the relevant facts and law, and neither the facts nor law have changed since my initial analysis. So, obviously, my analysis doesn't change, and I don't want to simply retype everything I wrote in that initial analysis, especially as nothing's changed in the analysis. So, again, if you like the details on why this looks to me like manslaughter and not a justified killing... Um, I'll refer you again back to the original analysis, but I'll just summarize it here in one paragraph. And that is that, in fact, let me pull up the photo of the moment of the shooting because I think that's relevant. Let's see, I believe I set that up here. Hmm. Oh come on, folks! Yes, here it is. All right, so here's the shooting, the moment of the the fatal shot being fired. Uh, Kyle Carruth has been thrown off his front porch. He's wielding a rifle there, a carbine. Uh, he's the moment his feet touch the ground, he he's turned facing um, Chad Reed, fires. I believe it's two shots into his chest, killing Chad Reed. At the moment those shots are fired, Chad Reed's not presenting as an imminent threat to anybody. That's basically my summary. At the moment that Kyle Carruth shot Chad Reed in the chest with a rifle, I I guess it was a carbine, not that it matters, Reed was standing entirely still, some dozen feet away, not presenting as an imminent deadly force threat to anybody, nor even as an eminent threat to any property, which could theoretically be a consideration under Texas Penal Code 9.42, which makes Texas the only state that even allows for the possibility of deadly force and defense of property. A killing cannot be justified in the apparent absence of any such imminent threat by the person you're killing. And therefore, the killing of Reed by Carruth in the absence of such an apparent eminent force threat cannot be legally justified. That's my view on this case in a single paragraph. Again, if you'd like a more detailed analysis, you can look at the Um, The prior analysis I did back at November 27th in the lawofselfdefense.com slash blog. You do, however, need to be a law of self-defense member to access that content. Now, I know, let me make myself, uh, I was going to say large, that sounds inappropriate. Um, But I know that many in the gun and self-defense communities are upset or outraged by my legal conclusion in this case. I I know that because they've rather aggressively told me so. And that's an entirely human reaction. I get it. Um, a lot of nonsense preceded the actual shooting, including a lot of nonsense committed by Reed, such as Reed bumping chests or nipple rubbing, as as Nick Riccato would put it, uh, with Kyle Caruth. Uh, Reed initially reaching for Caruth's rifle when the two men were on the porch, uh, and then Reed hurling the armed Caruth a dozen or so feet off Caruth's own front porch. And it's common for people to look at that bad conduct by Reed through an emotional lens and conclude that Reed had somehow earned shooting. That, however, is not the law, what the law allows or requires. What the law requires for a shooting to be lawful is that the person shot was in the moment, apparently presenting as an imminent deadly force threat to some innocent person. And the actual evidence in this case again extensively covered in my previous analysis where we embed all the videos and and photos and so forth, Uh, the evidence in this case simply does not support that view, that there was an imminent threat facing Kyle Careth when he shot Chad Reed. Now, does that mean that Reed's prior conduct, his bad conduct, is irrelevant to a self-defense analysis? I mean, not necessarily. Prior conduct by an aggressor can be relevant to whether A perception of an imminent threat is a reasonable perception. The prior conduct can provide context or buttress the reasonableness of the perception of an imminent threat, but that still requires, in the moment, some degree of imminent threat. Uh, It can be useful to think of this as uh, almost like a multiplication uh, expression, where you have uh, prior conduct times In the moment, imminent threat equals an enlarged imminent threat. The additional hostile context is provided by the prior conduct. So prior conduct times in the moment, imminent threat equals an even bigger imminent threat. So someone reaching for their waistband absent some prior threat could only be reasonably perceived as someone reaching for their waistband uh, in some inoffensive way, like they would do if they were reaching for their wallet or were engaged in some other inoffensive conduct, a cell phone, whatever. But if that same person had just previously threatened to shoot you dead, them reaching for their waistband is now informed, contextualized, multiplied by their earlier verbal threat and is now reasonably perceived as conduct consistent with an intent to carry out the prior threat. And that's fair enough. But that still requires that there be some reasonably perceived eminent threat in the moment. If there is no perceived imminent threat in the moment, uh, not what was happening earlier in the confrontation, but what is happening when the purportedly defensive shots are fired, then the value of that imminent threat in that multiplication expression is zero. It's prior conduct times zero. And the prior conduct by itself is not sufficient to constitute an imminent threat. There has to be some overt physical act in the moment consistent with an apparent intent to carry through with that threat. After all, anything times zero is zero. Prior conduct times no overt act times zero equals zero imminent threat in the moment. So can you continue that illustration? Someone who's issued a threat to shoot you dead a serious threat, one you believe that any reasonable person would believe, but they never reach for their waistband or otherwise commit an overt physical act consistent with an apparent intent to carry out that verbal threat, they are not yet presenting as an imminent deadly force threat against which you can use deadly defensive force. The verbal threat by itself is not enough. It's also important to remember that this self-defense element of imminence is not static. Like a window, it opens and closes. A threat may not yet be imminent and then become imminent, the window opens, and then cease to be imminent, the window closes. It's only while the threat is imminent, while the window of imminence is open, that the defender can justifiably use force against that apparent threat. In this case, it would appear that there were prior periods in the confrontation in which Caruth might well have been justified in shooting Reed dead. I'm thinking particularly of the moment when Reed was close enough and appeared to attempt uh, to violently seize Caruth's rifle or carbine from his grip. Caruth, however, did not shoot Reed within that open window of eminence. And by the time Caruth did shoot Reed, that window of eminence had closed and no other window of eminence had opened. At the time of the shooting, Reed was an entirely unarmed man standing still, not presenting as an imminent threat to either Caruth or anybody else. And one cannot shoot someone in merely speculative fear of what they might do in the future. There has to be an articulable evidence from which a reasonable inference of an imminent threat in the moment can be made. Now, if Reed had begun to advance on Caruth's muzzle, a reasonable argument of imminent threat could be made there. But that's not what actually occurred. And by the way, if you're wondering why I say this looks like manslaughter, and I don't go all the way to full-blown murder, uh, it's because the immediately preceding heated physical confrontation between the men strikes me as the kind of adequate provocation or hot blood that would typically mitigate what would otherwise have been murder to voluntary manslaughter. Now, what about this grand jury thing? You may be wondering, but what about the grand jury declining to return an indictment? Doesn't that mean that Corruth's shooting of Reed was legally correct? and I'm afraid it does not. The outcome of a grand jury proceeding is largely driven by the prosecutor presenting to that grand jury, and the prosecutor is a political actor. The grand jury does not see all the evidence in the case. It does not hear both sides of the legal narrative. The grand jury is not genuinely an adversarial process. The grand jury hears only the narrative that the prosecution wants to present. The defense has no privilege to present its side of the story to the grand jury. And as you might imagine, if a group of people is told only one side of the story, that one side is likely to sound pretty compelling. That means that it's generally the case that a grand jury returns an indictment if the prosecution wants an indictment returned. And the grand jury returns a no true bill, no indictment, if the prosecution prefers that there be no indictment, period. So all the grand jury decision to not indict tells us really is that the prosecutor in this case preferred that there not be an indictment. Now, that's not a decision made on the legal merits. The legal merits would support an indictment. That's a decision that is the result of a political calculus. Now, in the best of worlds, we generally hope that the outcome of the political calculus by the prosecutor is consistent with the legal merits of the case, but there's no necessity or requirement that that be the case. And as we see here, the connection between legal merit and political calculus can be tenuous in the extreme. And for those who may doubt that this may have played a role in the case of this shooting, I would ask you to consider whether you'd agree it played a role in the opposite direction in such cases as the prosecution of George Zimmerman or Kyle Rittenhouse. Because if you believe politics possibly drove those prosecutions Anyone considering the matter in good faith must concede that similar political decision-making could well have played a role with respect to the Grand Jury, again, albeit in favor of not prosecuting rather than prosecuting. I also feel obliged to mention that such political calculations by a prosecutor, as appear to me to have taken place in this case, are not necessarily bad or unreasonable or motivated by malice or personal favoritism, Uh, This prosecutor will know, for example, whether a conviction was likely on the facts of this case if the matter was put to an actual trial jury in that community. If the prosecutor believes a conviction to be unlikely in the extreme, and that could well be the case, trial juries also often act out of emotion rather than on legal merits, well, then it would make little sense to drive forward an indictment only to waste everybody's time and money on a full-blown trial that could only be expected to result in an acquittal. Now, I'm no fan of using the criminal justice process itself as a punishment for its own sake. Now, none of that changes the fact that the outcome here was political, not one driven by genuine legal merit. And finally, I would also caution against the logical fallacy known as outcome bias. Outcome bias occurs when someone concludes that the fact that their preferred outcome actually occurred means that this means that outcome was inevitable. An example would be someone who loudly predicts that their favorite team is going to win the Super Bowl. And then when his team does, in fact, win, he takes that preferred outcome as one that was obvious and inevitable. In reality, of course, the prospect of any particular team competing in the Super Bowl coming out the winner is neither 100% nor 0%. Each team has some greater or lesser prospect of winning that the preferred team won this time doesn't mean that the same outcome would occur if the game could magically be played over a second time. Applying that logical fallacy to corrupt shooting of Reed and the grand jury declining to return an indictment uh, it would be an example of outcome bias to conclude that because the outcome was no true bill, that no true bill was the obvious and inevitable outcome in this case, the only possible correct outcome. That would be logical error. A different, or even the same, prosecutor presenting a different one-sided narrative to a different, or even the same, grand jury could very well have secured an indictment on the legal merits in this case if that's the outcome that the prosecutor desired. And don't even get me started if this had happened not in Texas, in Massachusetts, or New York, or Maryland, or New Jersey, or California, or lots of other states. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you for the moment. Remember, Oh, before I go, I do want to mention, we have our Law of Self-Defense Hard to Convict webinars ongoing. We just did the first one of these two days ago on Wednesday, and it was a huge success as far as I'm concerned, and we got great feedback on our feedback forms from the people who participated. These Hard to Convict webinars are 100% free. They're myth-busting webinars on self- defense law, but they are each limited to 100 seats, and they're, they're filling up fast, and several are filled up already. Uh, so if you are interested in attending one of these? It's free, folks, uh, and we keep them under two hours in length. You can sign up for a seat at one of the still open uh, dates for this at slash hard to convict. That's slash hard to convict. All right, folks, just remember in closing, um, uh, well, one more thing. Uh, as soon as I'm done with this live YouTube, I'll be hopping over to Riccato Law. Uh, with Nick to uh, cover the uh, Theodore Edgecombe sentencing by Judge Borkowski. It should be a great deal of fun. So I should see you all there in just a few minutes, right after I shut this down. All right, folks, remember, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill. Then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law, so you're hard to convict. Until then, uh, until next time, until maybe I'll see you over at Raqueta Law in a couple minutes. I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law Self-Defense. Stay safe.